Hello, I'm Stuart Chittenden and this is Lives, a show about conversation, community and the people that bring community to life. My guests today are Claire Watson Bartholomew, a social impact designer and writer, and Stephen Bartholomew, musician with Mal Madrigal, media scholar and founding producer of Team Human with Douglas Rushkoff. Claire and Stephen are the co-owners of a new dining venue, Lola's Cafe, located inside the Filmstream's Dundee Theatre building. Today's show is recorded at Lola's Cafe and in the Filmstream's Linda Micro Cinema. Claire and Stephen, welcome to the show. Thanks. Thank you. What I'd like to do is uh, start with the love story, and I'd like to know how you two met. Well, I'll tell the story since it was my idea. Um, <laughs> no, actually, it's, it's kind of trippy, actually. I was in uh, India. I was living in India. I was going to school there for a semester, so I was there for like five, six months. And I was thinking about home uh, one day, one afternoon, and I thought of Steven, and I had never met him, but I had gone to see him play music. I was a fan of his band. You know, I'd seen him occasionally at the coffee shop, and he popped into my head one day in India, and I thought, yeah, I better, I better look that guy up when I get home. So when I came home, I did just that. I contacted a friend of mine who knew him to see what his story was. Um, and yeah, introduced myself, right? That's At a party. Um, so yeah, so yeah, it was all completely premeditated meeting <laughs> by myself because I had this random premonition or thought um, in Southern India one day when I was there. So that was uh, back in what, December of 2006. Yeah, dated uh, for a few years before moving to New York together in 2010. Do you have talents that are beyond the, what you might describe them as paranormal? Um, <laughs> strangely, I haven't really ever thought about it that much, but maybe, <laughs> maybe mildly. What makes you think maybe? Um, because there have been thoughts I've had that turn into like reality. I'm also very good at planning things too. So it's, you know, don't want to confuse like clairvoyancy or anything like that with just like real efficient planning. Also. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I don't know. You can weigh in on whether or not you think I'm paranormal. What is, what is Stephen thinking right now? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I don't know, maybe she shouldn't hold the microphone. <laughs> you know, it's funny, looking back, um, you know, I knew, I knew of Claire, we hadn't really met, um, and we, the interesting thing was we had all of these mutual connections. I, I worked for her aunt at an elementary school, I was good friends with her cousins who were musicians, and um, so there were all of these, and we, and we grew up a few blocks away from each other. So there were all of these opportunities for us to connect. Um, and, uh, and for whatever reason, we didn't. And so that's why that, this sort of premonition in India is an interesting, <laughs> this is sort of the, the spark that helped us connect. Um, but yeah, in terms of Claire's sort of paranormal or supernatural abilities, 
I, I mean, I do think, you know, supernatural aside, Claire's good at sort of, at least for me and for our relationship, I always feel she knows, kind of knows what's best for me. So things like big moves, big life changes, moving to New York, um, decisions on, on musical projects, um, opening a restaurant, all of these kinds of things, uh, grad school, all this stuff, she's always has kind of an insight or a way of, of decision-making that, um, that uh, could be sort of a superpower of hers. And, I, and I've learned to trust it. You know, I've, uh, when we were younger, I think I fought it much more, you know, kind of like, oh, no way. That's, that's crazy. That's a crazy idea. Um, and now I've, you know, her track record's so good that I'm kind of like, yeah, I, I trust her, her uh, premonitions on, on big decisions for, for me and for us. <laughs> so one of, the other, one of the other moves was shortly after um, we got together, I decided to add a major uh, right before I was supposed to graduate. So I needed to quickly learn a second language in order to get this second degree. And I knew no languages at all. I hadn't even taken a class of Spanish in my life. I took Latin in high school and barely made it through three years of that. So I had to go down to South America to learn a language. And here's uh, at the first party that we uh, had a conversation at, Steve had mentioned to me that he had been to Ecuador twice. And so in, you know, I'm 22, randomly making life decisions. I'm like, I'll, I'll go to Ecuador so I can tell this boy that I'm talking to that I'm going to go to Ecuador. <laughs> Why not? So um, I, I booked this trip to Ecuador. We keep hanging out. I think it's a fantastic idea if he also comes to visit me down in South America. And while we're at it, we'll just travel for two months together. I think we'd been together for like four at this point. Uh, so I show up at the coffee shop that he's working at. I um, can't remember if it was with a check or a plane ticket. <laughs> like, I want you to come to South America. I, you know, I had a student loan, so I blew it on my boyfriend's plane ticket. It's such a good idea. Um, yeah, and so I invited him to come to South America. He came. We had a great time. Uh, he did tell me that he almost didn't get on the plane to come down there. So that would have been a real game changer. I would have been pretty pissed. <laughs> um, but he did come. So we, we traveled through Ecuador, Chile, Argentina for eight weeks, and that was it. It seems to me that how your life has unfolded and maybe reached this point began with this idea of risk-taking and a complete commitment in each other. Kind of alongside of that, at least for me, has been this idea that we're sort of free to take these types of risks because as long as we're together, like we've got, we've got each other's backs. And so, so even with, with Lola's in the restaurant, it's like, seemed kind of like a crazy idea. Maybe even still does a little bit, but it's like, as long as, you know, as long as, you know, I see Claire come in, you know, or, or as long as she arrives and I know that she's kind of running the show, I feel pretty confident, pretty good about otherwise a cr what seems like a crazy <laughs> decision.
like to ask each of you just to talk a little bit about your, um, your family context and your childhood. I guess I can start. Um, so yeah, I grew up uh, kind of in this area, in the Dundee-Benson area of uh, Omaha. Um, my grandparents on both sides were Italian immigrants. Uh, well, I guess my great-grandparents on my mom's side and on my dad's side, my grandparents came over from Italy. Um, so very, uh, you know, kind of big Italian family, lots of Sunday meals together and uh, loud, <laughs> I think is what characterizes uh, both, both families, just loud, raucous meals and uh, passionate people um, arguing <laughs> and uh, arguing over food always. Kind of grew up in that context. My dad and his father and his and my great grandfather they all uh, worked in a statuary business. Uh, so uh, as a kid, I grew up around that kind of uh, craft work, um, and uh, got to work in the statuary business a little bit, um, making statues and helping repair statues. Um, that business was a business for for some time it's how it's how my grandfather uh, had seven kids and uh, raised a family by the time my dad took over sort of uh had a nice run but towards the end of it it was kind of a i don't know wasn't quite a viable business anymore statuary and artwork and you know so um that's sort of my background um and uh claire yeah where to start so yeah i grew up in um Country Club, three blocks from where Steve lived. Um, my immediate family is small. I have a younger brother, um, but we grew up very close to, my mom has uh, seven sisters and brothers, or six siblings. Um, there's seven of them total, and so, and I have 26 first cousins on that side, and most of all of us lived in a six block radius, um, so I felt like I came from a big family, like I'm pretty comfortable in chaos. Um, there was always a lot of kids around. My mom's a school teacher. A lot of my family is in education. A lot of them are teachers. Um, my father is uh, a yoga teacher, so he's been doing yoga in Omaha for 40-some years, I think. Um, so yeah, probably 41 years uh he has been doing yoga in omaha way before it was trendy um so definitely as a kid i was so embarrassed that my dad was a yoga teacher I'm like oh my god nobody can know about that um let's see in terms of um my background i'm a mutt i'm british german irish all the stuff um culinary traditions we had none except for like a sunday <laughs> Sunday roast beef, you know, lots of potatoes, beef, um, very little seasoning, salt and pepper if you're lucky. <laughs> um, I became a vegetarian in high school. I ate a lot of meat growing up, loved it. I took a bet from a good friend of mine in high school that I couldn't go, I think it was Lent, like 40 days without eating meat. Um, and I failed. The next morning, I ate like cold pork chops out of the fridge and they ridiculed me. And so I doubled down on the bet and I said, I can go like 80 days without eating meat. And from that point forward, for eight years, I was a vegetarian. 
collecting reasons in the early months of why I was a vegetarian because, you know, in the early 2000s in Omaha, Nebraska, that wasn't like very acceptable to be a vegetarian. People want to know why, you know, here we go, random decisions like charting the path of my life. I think the one of the reasons I majored in environmental studies was because I was a vegetarian looking for reasons why I was a vegetarian and got very involved in the ecological impact of meat production, industrial agriculture. Well, this is a great segue um, to your academic background, environmental and international studies, and a transition from that professionally into work for a while with the UN. So, and this was all in New York. So tell us more about that. So I got a couple of degrees here at UNO. I wanted to pursue the international uh, studies degree. So I got a BA in that at UNO, um, but that was the one I added last. So it was the most interesting, <laughs> more ground to cover. So I decided to get my master's uh, in international affairs at the new school, uh, which was the reason we moved to New York because we needed one. So that was the reason. <laughs> um, so yeah, I got a degree in international affairs. It was a fantastic uh, academic experience at a very liberal institution. So coming from uh, state school in Nebraska, it was a breath of fresh air, in my opinion. Um, the focus of uh, my, my master's degree was uh, local community agriculture. Um, the work that I did at the UN was actually in Brazil. I was at a research institute in the middle of Brazil, in Brasilia, in the capital, a very strange place, very interesting. It was eye-opening to me to be part of the UN apparatus. I mean, I was like a very far appendage from, from the core of the UN, this little island in, in the middle of Brazil doing research. Um, but what I found was the only research they were interested in pursuing was topics that they'd already covered and answers they already knew. So it was really just very, very much inside, um, inside the box. And being a grad student at that time where you're so trained to question everything and seek new solutions and, you know, take on these wicked problems and challenges, I was incredibly frustrated. And it was eye-opening because my academic track was sending me towards maybe not the UN, but um, definitely uh, large NGOs that work very closely with the UN using sort of the UN framework, um, at least policy recommendations for how, how um, things are done in the field. And so, I began to question what I was doing, if I could be a part of this. Um, so yeah, graduated and then found a design firm, a very small design firm in New York that worked with these organizations. So I mean, I'm thinking of different UN agencies, um, but also large NGOs that work internationally in international development that took a design thinking approach to challenges that countries are facing or communities are facing. And so um, it was a, an alternative way to work 
on issues that I cared about a lot, but doing so in a way that I had a lot of freedom to make suggestions of how how problems could be solved. We also did um, graphic design and branding as well. So it was um, an older organization, been around for 20 years, and so the legacy had been traditional graphic design um, moving into some of this more innovative strategic work that they were doing. So I came sort of at a at a time in the studio when they were pivoting to do more of this work. So it was really exciting. Stephen, you were you were given a reason to go to New York. Yeah. Because Claire had sought the reason for you to go to New York. What was your thought process in, in this? Yeah, well, New York kind of always had a mystique for me. I was, you know, um, I had been a couple times on tour with bands, um, so just briefly kind of in and out. Um, and I remember the first time arriving there, just being so afraid, you know, just how do I act? You know, this idea of, you know, sophisticated New York. I was, I was a subscriber to the New Yorker and the New York Times for years, and you know, sort of like, so I had this idealized version of this heightened kind of idea of, or yeah, idea of what New York was. And so I remember just being kind of scared of it the first time, and then the second time, you know, you you find your way around, and it's just you know such an exciting place. Um, and then especially with music and and food and art and all these kinds of things that that I, I love. So so when Claire was talking about grad school and she basically narrowed it down to one, applying to one city and one place, <laughs> it was like perfect because that's where I, if I was going to move somewhere, that's where I'd want to go. So yeah, it just kind of became a reality. Uh, I don't know, yeah, Claire manifested <laughs> as a reality. And um, so I was excited um, and scared. Um, you know, we had been together for a while at that time, so I wasn't scared in terms of the relationship, but um, just, you know, I had, I had, at that time I was playing in a number of bands, I was doing some touring, um, I was teaching guitar lessons, um, and also we were living very cheaply, you know, I had very low overhead. <laughs> so I, so in that having, you know, being able to live so comfortably and cheaply for a musician was, you know, it was very attractive because you can kind of spend hours working on things um, and playing and practicing. And so I was, I was nervous about losing those, th you know, what would I do in New York? Um, 
So we got there, and of course, the first gig I landed was a, a barista gig at a cafe, you know, curiously similar to <laughs> our cafe. <laughs> um, but nearly had a nervous breakdown. I was like, I can't believe I'm taking a step backwards now. I'm, you know, I'm, I had, I had done some food service work and, you know, obviously I'm back in food service, so nothing against food service work, but this wasn't music. This wasn't school. This wasn't, you know, pursuing those types of ideas uh, or, or ambitions. Um, so yeah, so I was like, oh, here I am working at a cafe, a stressful cafe. <laughs> um, you know, what's going on here? Um, So long of the short, um, (laughs) Claire made me quit another one of those supernatural powers. She's like, you don't have to do this. We can, you can figure something else out. Uh, Call your friend who is a musician uh, who lived in Omaha for a time, who's working at an audiobook production house. Call your friend and see if they're looking for anybody. Sure enough, called her. They absolutely were looking for somebody because she was leaving that week. Um, so I got this gig uh, doing audiobook production and uh, and also kind of academic lecture audio production, which was a great kind of New York gig to have. It was all musicians and actors who were, you know, kind of producing these audio programs and books and uh um, so it's a good community, and they gave me the freedom to kind of work on music and to, uh, yeah, to sort of explore New York and enjoy going out and seeing things. And that was a cool little little time while Claire was in grad school. And then we flipped. Then I went to grad school, and uh, while Claire was working at the design studio, um, and I pursued a, a master's in media studies. Um, that was kind of a real exciting time for me to. Um, just uh, being able to take sort of my background in, in audio production and as a musician, just being able to kind of find a program that I didn't even know existed where people were looking at media and, you know, doing sort of a rigorous critique of technology, technology's relationship to sort of human usefulness and, and utility, um, propaganda, the relationship of, of media shifts and sort of power structures, social justice, um, organizing both the positive and negative aspects of technologies with sort of social justice struggles. Um, so that was really, I don't know, it's just a great program to find. It was at the uh, Queens College, which is part of the CUNY uh, system, City University of New York, so it was very affordable, didn't have to go into deep debt to have access to great you know, resources and professors. Um, and so, so I was uh, studying there and um, working with Professor Douglas Rushkoff, who uh, is a longtime media thinker and uh, media theorist. And we became friends and uh, started this podcast. Um, I helped build a studio, a podcasting studio in the basement of the university. So I started doing this podcast with Douglas, and then uh, after graduating, I got hired on to teach in the department. Um, so I was teaching some audio production, um, creative sound design, podcast production, and then also a media criticism course, which was really great, but also really challenging material to, to teach. Um, so that's kind of where things were before we moved, and then, and then our, our daughter, little, little Rita, was born and uh, at that point at that time and so then that was kind of when another life <laughs> decision making shakeup you know came about 
You are listening to Lives. We'll be back after the break. I'm Stuart Chittenden and this is Lives. My guests today are Claire Watson-Bartolome and Stephen Bartolome, co-owners of a new dining venue, Lola's Cafe. We could spend a lot more time talking about what you were doing in New York, but I feel we really should talk about the discussions you had um, around it's time to come back to Omaha and to create this uh, this place, Lola's Cafe. Mm -hmm. So you mentioned one aspect here, which is your daughter. Tell us about some of the discussions you had and what you were dreaming about for your return to Omaha. Um, it was a hard decision, that's for sure. I, um, I didn't think I was gonna be as emotionally affected as I was leaving the city. It was very, very hard for me to leave New York. In fact, if my mother hadn't come out to help with the baby, and also she ended up packing our whole apartment, basically, because I just emotionally couldn't do it, I think, um, then we might still be there. But she packed us <laughs> and got us ready to go. <laughs> Thank you, Mom. Um, no, I mean, we, we talked about it was my um my company that uh the design studio that I was working for Zago um had gone through some transition and the studio was actually closing in New York and so it was in sort of a natural transition time for me if I you know was I gonna look for another job in New York um then immediately you know we talk about daycare expense and that sort of thing so I think we always knew we were going to come back to Omaha. The question of when was a little bit more apparent after Rita was born, um, that it was going to be soon. But then the question of what would we do here was always resounding. We talked about actually opening up a grocery store, not super seriously, but that was an idea. And that was part of a larger theme of like we would come back and and go big, like do something big. Big in the sense of like big for two people with a baby to, to do. <laughs> people are doing much bigger things. But um, but we got back here. Steve worked remotely with the podcast for a year. I worked remotely as a freelance consultant basically for a year, kind of, um, you know, not super regularly, but enough and the decision to open Lola's was definitely not thought about in New York the you know the discussion of owning something was always there um starting something grocery store I feel like we both knew that a restaurant a coffee shop a cafe of some sort was in our future always Right? 
I mean, did you know that? I knew that. I didn't, I didn't totally know that. <laughs> <laughs> that. Like, we weren't going to get out of this life without doing this at some point. We talked about it enough. We like food. We like coffee. So when did that, so when did that crystallize in, in a meaningful way beyond the idea and maybe the knowing look at each other that, yeah, it's, we're, we're, we're going to do the coffee shop cafe? Well, so, um, you know, an important part of that decision um, is our good friend Karina, who is the executive chef at uh, Lola's. So she was actually running a catering company, a boutique catering company for a few years here in Omaha. Um, and I was talking with her about how I could help her um, but basically, the three of us and then our fourth partner, Phil, it all just kind of came around this opportunity uh, here at the theater. And so then we all just started talking about what this would look like. Um, and Karina, Steve, and I all see very eye to eye on food and in a dining experience and and so I think while we might have all been thinking in somewhat different terms of this concept we were all pretty much in step not to say we're not in step with Phil but I think we all had this these ideas of uh, cafes that we'd frequented in New York um, and making sort of an amalgamation of these great places come alive here in Omaha and that um, at you know, first thought, having a cafe in a theater um, isn't the easiest thing to do. It's challenging, but then the more that we talked about it and thought about it, it, it also could be a really great opportunity, which we found it to be, um, in that it's maybe one of the few places in Omaha, besides a mall, that you're guaranteed foot traffic. Like, people walk through here and they see your counter. Where in a big city like New York, you can you can be on any street and you have people walk by and see your counter. So we very much created the idea of Lola's to fit in this space. Would you describe Lola's in practical terms? Like what is Lola's? Yes. And also would you describe maybe something that's a little less tangible but is felt, which is the ethos or the philosophy behind what you're trying to achieve for the experience here. Yeah, yeah. So in practical terms, Lola's is a cafe um, that is open morning, noon, and night, uh, serving coffee and food from the counter for breakfast and lunch, um, and then charcuterie and small plates by candlelight for dinner. So three concepts in one, all unified by, I think, what you asked for, the ethos of simple, beautiful food. The feeling of the experience both at the counter and at the table in the food is that the ingredients of the food we are very proud of and they make something that is seemingly ordinary taste amazing. So ingredients that have integrity and quality can speak for themselves when they are put together in a thoughtful, intentional way. Nothing super fancy or overdone. Um, very straightforward and honest food. Done in a way that's uncomplicated. And 
what I mean by that is from the counter to to the table, we try to present things in a manner that I don't know doesn't overly complicate things. So the sandwiches have five ingredients on them. All of them are delicious. The the coffee we serve in a very traditional Italian style. So there's only one size for a cappuccino. If you want a cappuccino, you'll get a cappuccino, that sort of thing. So I think also even our our wine selection and our wine list, we want um, delicious food that might in other restaurants feel fancy and expensive to feel casual and normal. So we want to be an eatery that people will come to dinner on a Tuesday or a Saturday. And I think that we've made choices in our wine and our menu in order to make that possible. So our price point is definitely a casual casual venue as opposed to fine dining. But I think as non-restaurant owners, like this is our, you know, first first run at it, we definitely had to push back on some of the um, I don't know wisdom of the industry and standard practices of you know using crap to to cook and maybe that maybe that's a bad <laughs> way of saying that but if we don't want to eat it we don't want to cook with it and we don't want to serve it and so um, we yeah we use ingredients that otherwise would be reserved for some of the highest end menu items so We'll see if if that's sustainable. So far, it's going okay. Um, but and I think if we keep our head on our shoulders and and you know try to be smart with the, all the decisions we make, we will be able to continue to make sure we're producing quality food that we'd serve our daughter. Success can be measured in, in obvious terms, and for a dining industry, notoriously revenues uh, and, and uh, margins are tight. Right. And so that, but that's one obvious, tangible measure of success is, is revenue. 
But I think there are also other ways to measure success that are less tangible. It could be just personal fulfillment. And so I'm wondering how, how are you measuring success? One thing that strikes me when I'm back in the kitchen baking bread is um, a little tinge or feeling of success that I have is when I hear the porcelain clinking against each other and, and the sort of the hum or the sort of little din of conversations, you know, indistinct conversations happening. And when, when that presence is there, when you feel like you have created a space that where people feel comfortable spending the, the, the afternoon, um, that's really, for me, uh, especially recently, as it's been more common and more, more people and more regulars, that's the feeling of success for me is just knowing that this is a spot a spot for people to hang. Um, and part of that was the impetus behind the, creating the cafe is we were both working free, so much freelance and bouncing around really wonderful places and coffee shops here in Omaha um, and kind of wanting to take the, the things that we liked about them all and put them sort of in one spot. And I don't know that we could have done that by design so much, but I think part of the, our relationship with film streams of them already having a space with an ethos of fostering community, a space where they sort of had a vision of the discussion of film and the arts and, um, you know, I don't know, us being brought into that and a part of that was, was a nice partnership, was a good fit, I think, for creating this, this a spa the space um, that I, yeah, that I was hoping to. <laughs> what, what have been some of the benefits for you as a family and also some of the challenges for you as a family having uh, begun this venture? I mean, definitely uh, the hours are intense. Um, and it's, uh, for me, baking bread, um, I get here really early. Uh, you know, when we first started at four, now I've kind of, now I'm at around 4.30, quarter to five, um, and often leaving at four or five. So that's a lot of hours to be away from my daughter. Um, th that's a struggle, that's a challenge. Um, the way that I sort of, I don't know, the way that it, I rationalize or justify is uh, it still very much feels like a puzzle and it feels like a solvable puzzle. So it feels like something that with a little more experience, with a little more efficiency in my process, and as we grow and have the ability to hire more people as well, sort of the, you know, the catch-22 is you need to get a little bigger to be a little bigger, to, <laughs> you know. Um, so, uh, but as that as that's happening, it definitely feels like a solvable problem to get things back into balance, and that's also kind of exciting. That's the exciting challenge. Um, I mean, baking bread is a challenge in and of itself, and it's delicate and weird, and, um, but the, the sort of puzzle aspect of, of the work and the work-life balance and those types of things, if that, if that even means anything, <laughs> the life-work balance or work-life, um, but that's, that's exciting also, so, yeah. Working together has been fun like the this is a project that we are both working on and we talked um, I think maybe before we started that putting in as many hours as we are because we're working on 
you know, a shared project, it does, it does feel okay to do that. Um, it doesn't take a toll that it, it potentially could on our relationship because we're both, both juggling it. Um, so that's nice. It's nice to have, um, I think we started this at the right age of um, our daughter Rita, who we, we sat her down, we told her we were opening a cafe. I mean, this is just how we've always approached things with her, that we let her know what's going on. And she just immediately got it, told us we needed to have egg, eggies and high chairs. Like, yeah, we're going to. And so she's, she feels a part of it. Like she knows about it when I tell her I'm going to Lola's. She knows her dad's baking bread there. Um, so I think that it's also nice that we were able to bring her into this world so it's not something separate. I mean, it's we're very much away from her. We we both feel that, but she she's aware of what's going on and where we're at. She also comes in a lot. It's been nice to have the concept of Lola's, the place of Lola's, to be part of our family um, in this these last few months. I was going to say in this last year. I've only been open four months. <laughs> um, but, uh, yeah. It's also really nice how tangible the work is. Yeah. And so you're talking about Rita knowing what's going on. And in some ways, you know, I, I like that as, as sort of, I don't know, a, a metaphor almost in that, you know, our two-year-old understands what her parents are doing, making bre- making things that people are enjoying and that she enjoys too. She loves to eat, you know, she loves to eat the food here. She likes to come here. Um, and that feels good, you know, especially, you know, in a time where so much work, you know, well, yeah, work that I've really done. she wasn't really like picking up on the social impact design. <laughs> <laughs> Couldn't really grasp that one. Yeah, that, yeah. so, you know, um, yeah, just like having tangible work, I think. Is, well, it's nice. And when we both were working freelance, um, it was it was harder to to create the space for that. Like you have to put in so many hours to get your job done, but it's all self-imposed. And so it felt awkward to say like, okay, I'm gonna go and sit over here and not play with you while I do this work and. It was just, yeah, it's just I second the, like, tangibility of of this operation. It's, like, straightforward and visible. <laughs> what we have to do, what we are doing, and what, you know, what success looks like. You can hear it. You can see it. Um, so that's that's nice. Sit there while I tell you just how beautiful you look tonight As if you haven't heard me say about a hundred times You shake your head and look away I promise that I've tried my hardest to let go of this But every time I think about a world without you in it My life becomes a darker shade of gray Hey, hey, and all I wanna do is make you smile. When darkness still ensues, I wanna be alive. Whatever we go through, I'll make it worth your while. Cause every minute, every hour. 
your journeys have just been so much fun and this has just been like a dance, uh, a quick salsa th through these two lives as they you know, merge together. What I want to do, uh, given your experiences and, and how uh, full your lives have been, I want to ask you, Claire, how, how has Stephen changed? Um, that's such a hard question. <laughs> I don't know if you've changed as much as I just know you better now than when I first met you. That's not a very good answer. <laughs> I think, yeah, I don't know if if you've changed. I, I, yeah, I stand by what I said. I don't know if you've changed as much as I just know you better and I see how you are you in all of the different periods of our life. And so in the opening up a cafe, baking bread, learning to bake bread phase is is no different in the intensity that you bring to it, the precision that you bring to it. I joke that um, Stephen is a, a lone wolf, I call him that, and I think it's partially because he's an only child that he has this lone wolf, like DIY, like perfectionist, um, in the best, I'm saying that in the best way, uh, mentality that, you know, he, he will master something and he will then do it like to like, I don't know what I'm trying to say here, um, but he will absolutely do it. Our partner, Phil, actually made a joke about 10 years ago that the only person he would trust to perform brain surgery on him was Steve. And I totally agree with that because he absolutely finds the exact correct way to do it, learns how to do it, teaches himself, and then executes it, like to a T. Um, and so seeing him do that with something tangible like bread and tasty like bread, it I, I can see how he did that in every other aspect that I've known him to work in areas that he's worked in, whether it be, um, you know, sound engineering, whether it be school, whether it be whatever it may have been in the lifetimes before um, we moved to New York, but to see that happen with this project together, it's like, oh yeah, you do this. This is what you do, and this is what it looks like when you <laughs> when you do it for bread. <laughs> um, sweet, great. You know, we sort of ha affectionately have these names for each other, uh, <laughs> Maniac and Monster, um, and that's actually our LLC that we formed when we decided to do <laughs> any sort of business-y projects together. So is t in terms of the way I think we've, at least Claire has changed, this, the, the nickname Monster is, um, uh, in part, it's because you know if you meet Claire, she's small, she's petite, she has a very kind face, a very, a very, I don't know, a, a, a welcoming smile, and so Monster seems to be the absolute opposite of of what uh, of of her presence. But she's she's a monster in terms of her pa like 
what I see as her her powers or superpowers. You know, if you've got a huge project like opening a restaurant, the monster comes out. And again, in an affectionate way, I don't mean in, at all in a, a negative way, where she's she just owns, she she's she's in charge. And I think that the, kind of like what she was just saying for me, this project has brought out those kind of. Uh, you know, she was a design strategist. Now she's a strategist here, just in a different way, and uh, and uh, so those those monster powers are in full effect. And and I think what she's what what I'm kind of hearing from her answer is that like I've become a maniac in <laughs> a bread maniac. Uh, so the monsters and and maniacs uh, LLC is uh, is an apt <laughs> description of us. Um, but maybe that's too inside. I don't know. <laughs> I've been in conversation with Claire Watson Bartholomew and Stephen Bartholomew, two of the co-owners of Lola's Cafe. Thank you both so much for being here. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thank you so much. I mean, the, it sounded fine. <laughs> <laughs> clank, clank. What are the ringing endorsements <laughs> are we going <laughs> That's the end of this week's show. Our sound engineers are Mark McGaw and Dalimar McTizik. I'm your host and producer, Stuart Chittenden. Live's radio show is an executive production of Squish Talks. Find links to podcasts of this and previous shows via our Instagram and Facebook profiles at Lives Radio Show. Join me next week for more conversation, community, and the people that bring community to life. <laughs>